0: You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information on any of the topics you hear today, or to learn more about our work around the world, visit USIP.org and check us out on social
1: media.
2: Welcome, and thank you for joining us today. My name is Tabitha Thompson, and I serve as the acting director for USIP's program on nonviolent action. We focus on research and capacity building to better understand and support movements around the world as they seek to advance human rights, justice, and sustainable peace through nonviolent means. As you may know, today is International Anti-Corruption Day, a day committed to spreading awareness about the ways we can combat corruption's damaging social, political, and economic effects. A growing body of research has identified linkages between corruption and violent conflict, making it a key threat to sustainable peace and one of the greatest challenges to achieving the sustainable development goals. Rooting out corruption is important for building and maintaining democratic institutions, strengthening rule of law, and ultimately creating more just and peaceful societies. This year's theme is United Against Corruption, which very much aligns with the topic of our event today how movements are fighting corruption and demanding transparency and the accountability for their national and local governments. This event also marks the end of a multi-year research project studying the effects of external support to movements focused on transparency, accountability, and good governance. And we are grateful to our partners at USAID and DRL for supporting this work. As part of this initiative, a series of interviews, focus, focus group discussions, and workshops were conducted in six countries, Burma, Guatemala, Zimbabwe, Ukraine, Nigeria, and Kenya, with the goal of learning how citizens and movements are using nonviolent action to fight corruption, as well as the best ways for international actors, such as ourselves, to support them. The findings and reports for each of these countries are available on the USIP website, and you'll be hearing from three of those report authors today. They'll share what they learned, as well as provide more recent insights on citizen-led efforts against corruption in light of COVID-19, which has heightened the risk of corruption in many states around the world. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce our panel. Gladys Hlothwayo is the Secretary of International Relations for Zimbabwe's MDC Alliance. She has 15 years of experience in Zimbabwe's democracy movement in which she has worked as an activist, member of a coalition and for a donor organization. She was previously a British Chevening scholar and a Hubert Humphrey Fellow at the University of Minnesota. Olena Trego is the Secretary General of NACO the Independent Defense Anti-Corruption Committee, which is an international oversight body created by Transparency International. She has more than 15 years of experience in policy analysis, design and reform implementation with a special focus on corruption prevention and economic and security sectors in Ukraine. Walter Flores is the principal advisor for the Center for Studies for Equity and Governance in Health Systems in Guatemala. He is a social scientist and a human rights advocate whose work has been carried out all over the world. And his expertise uh, is in health equity, right to health, democratic governance, social accountability, and community participation in public policies. Brian Sims is a senior manager of peacebuilding at Humanity United, where he leads the organization's peacebuilding and conflict transformation initiative in Zimbabwe. Brian has over 10 years of experience in the fields of human rights, democracy, and governance, including research, advocacy, and the establishment of an internationally-based NGO. And finally, we are grateful that our former USIP research advisor, Shaska Byerly, will moderate this conversation. Shaska now serves as a senior fellow at the Terrorism, Transnational Crime, and Corruption Center at George Mason University. She's a researcher, writer, and educator in nonviolent action, focusing on anti-corruption and accountability, and she's the author of Curtailing Corruption. Thank you all for taking the time to be here today to share more about your work and research and a special thanks to my colleague, Miranda Rivers for all the work that went into bringing us all together. Shaska?
3: Thank you, Tabitha. If, you, if anyone cannot hear me, please let me know. Raise your hand, send a message to the chat room. Um, we are really excited to have this session today because as Tabitha mentioned, it is the culmination of uh, extraordinary research that has been conducted in a number of countries around the world and we are so fortunate to have three of the leading authors here with us today who are also civil society actors uh, in their own right. I'd just like to give you a brief uh, overview of how this session is going to run so that you you have a sense that we are, have designed something as interactive as possible through, uh, through Zoom. And also to mention uh, what will be the format for sending in questions and comments to the panelists. So the format will consist of two short se- uh, sessions of presentations. So in our first session, Our panelists will give a three to five minute overviews of the country research and the uh, conclusions of their special report. Then we will have our first round of questions and comments from all of you out there. Then we'll turn again to the panelists and they're going to have another three to five minutes each to talk about the takeaways for civil society and international actors. I should mention that we're also very thrilled that Dr. Brian Sims from Humanity United is here with us and he is going to be discussing in the first round how Humanity United has constructively supported social movements. Uh, Without further ado, I'd like to turn the floor over to Gladys.
0: Thank you so much, um, Shaska. Firstly, just to appreciate USIP for giving me this opportunity to share my thoughts on this very important um, day, anti-corruption um, um, day. Um, and also to contribute to this very um, you know, to the research that we were able to do in Zimbabwe. So the title of the paper was Challenges for Social Movements in the Post-Mugabe era. Um, Firstly, you know, one of the key things that we were able to find out from the research was that um, the majority of uh, the research respondents were of the view that there is, we have not seen a transition in Zimbabwe. We have seen a change of leadership, but that change of leadership was not uh, uh, concomitant con- 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 with uh, the, you know, the, the change of the governance culture in the country. Um, So the 2017 November coup um, has not led to a transition, despite the optimism that we saw that was characterized by the immediate um, post-coup period and also the rhetoric that came out of um, the current administration under President Mugabe, uh, under President um, Mnangagwa, especially around the promise for comprehensive reforms um, and their transformation to a democratic um, Zimbabwe what we have seen instead is more of uh, authoritarian consolidation characterized by militarization um, characterized by closure of democratic space closure of civic space Um, we saw what happened on the first of august just after the elections when six citizens were actually killed in broad daylight in the streets of of harare for demonstrating uh, to demand election results we also saw what happened in now january 2019 when citizens were demonstrating um demanding um you know um they were demonstrating against the increase of um, um fuel prices um you know the, the, the hiking that um, that had um, happened um we saw how 17 you know citizens were also killed um related to january 2019 we also saw just recently july 31 2020 when citizens were also demonstrating against corruption. Um, and we saw you know, quite a number of people being arrested, quite a number of people uh, being detained, uh, you know, abductions, um, and extrajudicial um, killings. Uh, we have also seen lethargy on uh, reforms. Um, in fact, as I am talking to you right now, there are 27 amendments that are being proposed by the government. And these 27 amendments to the Constitution are not meant to further the rights of citizens, but they're actually meant to consolidate power uh, for the current um, administration. We have also seen a lot of uh, state capture and corruption, escalation of human rights abuses. Since 2018, we have seen 50 extrajudicial killings and more than 120 abductions being perpetrated by the the government. Um, And there's also been a lot of impunity because no one has been held to account for all of these, um, you know, um, human rights abuses. Uh, so, largely, President Munangagwa has retained and perfected the predatory systems uh, that sustained um, the, the previous president, President Mugabe, uh, which were, you know, which bordered around, you know, party-state conflation, captured state institutions, you know, talk of your media, the judiciary, military, police, the electoral management body. All of these are under the, you know. Uh, the firm grip of the executive. Um, we have also seen militarization of state institutions, including the executive itself. I think for the first time in Zimbabwe, we now have uh, former generals who are part of the executive and um, the current vice president is actually, you know, um, a, a former general in the, in the army. Um, coming more specifically to issues of uh, corruption, since um, today we are talking about the anti-corruption day, uh, President Munangagwa you know, um, promised to put an end to corruption and to bring uh, perpetrators um, of corruption to book. I think this was one of his campaign, uh, uh, campaign um, messages, um, you know, in 2017 November. But also, as the country, um, uh, 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 you know, prepared for the 2018 um, elections, nevertheless, corruption and state capture have become so pervasive. Um, and have become one of the greatest failures of the current regime. They've absolutely failed to deal with this um, cancer in society. And in the majority of cases, corruption cases have been linked to individuals that are quite close to the president and uh, the first family, including his own wife and um, his sons, there are also individuals such as um, this individual is actually under under restrictive measures um you know uh, uh, of the u.s government and he has he's he, he uh, has one happened?
3: minute please one minute left
0: okay i didn't realize you know i was already. you know oh, anyway let me try to quickly finish um so you know all of these individuals are really Close to the president, and nothing has really been done to make sure that you know, um, you know, perpetrators of, of 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 these corruption cases are actually uh, brought to book. Between 2017 and 2018, you know, USD six billion dollars was actually lost to corruption under a program called Command Agriculture, where the military was heavily um, involved And this this this. Um, statistics are actually available in the Auditor General's report, as well as the Parliamentary Public Accounts um, Committee. The Anti-Corruption Commission, um, which is supposed to be an independent commission to look into these issues, is really captured. In fact, it is led by uh, the wife of the current foreign, uh, Foreign Affairs Minister, who is also a former general. So you can actually see that there is no um, you know, uh, political will to do with, this, um, with these issues. And we have seen a lot of catch and release where individuals are arrested, but nothing really comes out of those um, cases. And some of them are actually given bail without even the state contesting uh, some of these issues. And lastly, I just wanted to say, we have also seen, you know, the state going um, after whistleblowers and journalists who are actually exposing you know some of these corruption cases. I'm sure you might have followed the case of Hopo Chingwono, who was arrested um for you know um uh you know some of these corruption cases um citizen protests against uh, corruption have also been brutally uh, crushed i think i've already made um reference um to this to this um to this issue so you know corruption is really a big issue in zimbabwe and you know statistics are showing us that we are losing about a billion dollars United States dollars um, uh, uh, as a result of um, of, 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 of corruption. Um, I think I will end here. And maybe I can have more time to speak next time.
3: Thank you, Gladys. And I'm sorry we are keeping the presentations short because I know that there's so much to discuss about Zimbabwe. And uh, there could be a whole entire session just on uh, the situation and the report itself too thank you i'd like to turn now to uh, dr Walter flores from guatemala and walter could you please take three to five minutes to present an overview of the country research and the special report
4: great thank you um, during the last decade we saw a surge interest in looking at say, social movements confronting corruption and demanding Transparency and accountability in different parts of the world. The Arab Spring, Eastern Europe, and Latin America, and specifically in my own country, Guatemala. In our report, we argued that in the case of Guatemala, the roots of social movements fighting corruption and impunity have a long history, centuries, particularly indigenous people movements fighting oppression in a post colonial society. In our report, we focus on human rights movement of the last four decades, which includes indigenous and non-indigenous activists, and how they influence the young and urban social movements that led the 2015 demands for the resignation of the president and vice president accused of corruption. The main findings in our report is that the success of the social movements of 2015 was based on several conditions that were achievements of long-standing indigenous and human rights movements. For example, the access to information law or the year 2008, the creation of a national Ombudsman office, and the creation of a United Nations-backed commission against impunity in the year 2006. Uh, urban youth led uh, 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 social media. They use social media as the main tool for communication and organizing However, the mobilization gradually expanded to include more more and more of the long-established social movements and more traditional means and tools for communication. After several months of peaceful protests, the president and vice president uh, resigned. They are currently in prison, facing trial. But despite the energy of mobilized citizens, it all came to a sudden stop once authorities resigned. Some organizations such as indigenous movement insisted in continuing the pressure to demand structural reforms and agree on unified social justice demands beyond corruption. However, this did not happen. Elections were near and there was a general impression that the new authorities would continue the anti-corruption agenda. The new government elected under an anti-corruption slogan did all the opposite. It allowed and facilitated the restructuring of a coalition of politicians, judges, bureaucrats, and some members of the economic elite engaged in corruption and impunity. This coalition led a backlash against the anti-corruption movement. Despite the backlash, an anti-corruption movement is still very much present in Guatemala and is still fighting against this very strong coalition inserted in the overall state apparatus and but very importantly they are showing that they they have been learning from the experience of the year 2015. Nowadays we can see that the social movement fighting corruption they are using different strategies not only the the street protests, but they are also fighting in the judiciary system and they're also created a new political party and they're trying to elect progressive a, a politician as well. So uh, very importantly social movements do learn in this process and now we stop here thank you
3: thank you walter uh you're pointing to something uh to many important lessons and uh, how the uh the movement is uh, learning and adapting and also um uh, Starting to combine, to shift strategies and tactics and to actually combine institutional and extra institutional tactics together. Yeah. Uh, so I think that uh, we definitely will stay tuned on what is happening in Guatemala. And uh, sometimes there are some steps forward and then some steps back and then some steps forward again, which leads me to our next speaker, Olena Tregub who in fact uh, used that uh, expression uh, as the title for the special report on Ukraine. Uh, Olena, could you please take three to five minutes to present an overview of the country research and the special report? Yes, sure. Um,
1: Indeed, the corruption struggle in Ukraine can be described as uh, some ongoing uh, struggle and. Uh, Ukraine, according to many uh, rankings, according to the uh, Corruption Perception Index of Transparency International, is uh, the most corrupt country in Europe. Uh, And, um, of course, um, this struggle um, has started, I would say, since day one of Ukrainian independence. But my report uh, specifically speaks about what happened after so-called Euromaidan revolution. Um, In 2014, uh, we had a big uh, national uprising to um, uh, basically um, demand uh, pro-Western democratization and uh, reform in Ukraine. Um, And um, our pro-Russian president uh, fled to Russia, and a new president was elected, uh, a pro-Western president, Poroshenko. And since then, of course, um, anti-corruption reform uh, became uh, number one priority because if uh, you ask an average Ukrainian uh, in sociological polls, you see that uh, they say that two biggest problems of Ukraine are corruption and war with Russia. So um, did we really have anti-corruption movement in Ukraine? This is what I'm trying to answer among other things in my report. Uh, and the answer is, unfortunately, no. We had a very serious um, anti-corruption agenda supported by international actors, by uh, professionalized uh, civil society actors uh, who are called uh, in Ukrainian society uh, anti-corruption There is even like a name, this um, profession, I would say. But it's a professional things. All these people, they work for institutionalized NGOs. And uh, uh, they were very uh, influential at the time of um, uh, post-revolutionary reform. And they were able, together with international partners, um, to push for a certain agenda. And that agenda was uh, establishment of, um, uh, I'm sorry, that's my dog, sorry. Sorry. and that agenda was establishment of um uh independent anti-corruption institutions the infrastructure of those institutions which included uh, the national uh, corruption prevention agency uh, it included the um uh, national anti-corruption bureau anti-corruption prosecutor office and anti-corruption court of ukraine uh and um as as of and my report describes how these institutions were set up uh, and how difficult it was. Um, it also describes other achievements of Ukrainian anti-corruption struggle, such as establishment of uh, transparent um, system of electronic asset declarations of government officials, uh, transparent procurement, which uh, is probably one of the most successful anti-corruption reforms uh, after Maidan Revolution uh yet uh my report concludes that uh, corruption remains uh persistent and um uh, also um my report concludes that um uh, um it's very hard in ukraine to mobilize uh society for some social movement movement uh um, on the anti-corruption agenda i actually even uh make a comparison um with the uh social movement uh, that we had um after the war with russia started um um people really um united on all levels of society um not people who only do it professionally but also uh like common people who were uh, giving away their time their money in order to help uh, ukraine fight russia Uh, in the East. And this was a real movement. Uh, And these people even uh, entered the Ukrainian um, Ministry of Defense because they said that not only they now are replacing the function of the state because they understand that the state is weak and they are just citizens are replacing this uh, national security function. But they also said, let us reform this state. Let us enter MOD as advisors and let us just uh, draft new legislation in order to reform defense procurement, uh, housing, uh, uh, food, uh, all all the kind of um, necessities uh, in the war. And this was a real movement. But um, anti-corruption remained our high priority. Everybody worries about it. Yet, of course, um, uh, the result uh, is not yet the one that we would like to see and our international partners would like to see.
3: Thank you, Alena. Uh, I appreciate that uh, you're giving uh, such a concise summary of such an in-depth uh, report. It's uh, not easy to do that. and uh, And you're pointing to the in a way, the balance, the difficult balance that civil society actors have in the anti-corruption realm between, on the one hand, being a strong resource and source of policy analysis and recommendations that have a bite that can be that can be listened to and adapt adopted, and on the other hand, staying con- connected to citizens and bring and continuing to sustain citizen involvement and mobilization in the anti-corruption struggle
1: absolutely Um, we have very strong civil society in ukraine very, very vibrant but it is strong exactly in the area of uh, giving policy recommendation and formulating policies. Yet it's not strong in uh, like mobilizing citizens for something because these are two separate worlds a little bit and they and these worlds unite only when he, we have some
3: massive uprising like we had in 2014. Thank you. Uh, last but not least, I'd like to turn to Brian Sims from Humanity United. And uh, Brian, you haven't written a special report for USIP yet, but maybe you will one day. Uh, but in <laughs> but in the meantime, um, I think all of us would really benefit from uh, hearing about uh, hearing from you about how Humanity United, which is an international actor, has constructively supported social movements.
5: Sure. First, I just want to say it's a real privilege to to be here and to be in conversation with everyone. So so thanks for having me. And for perhaps those of you who aren't familiar with with HU, we're a foundation that was founded in 2008, and our peacebuilding approach is really centered around supporting locally-led peacebuilding initiatives, as well as networks, practices, policies, uh, all to elevate the voices of, of local peacebuilders. And so over the past few years, we've learned a lot about how to be and how not to be a donor within this really fluid, often very intense, but really rewarding space. And so there are four lessons that we've learned from supporting social movements that that really account for how we how we show up now. And so the first is that donors really need to understand the movement ecosystem. And I think this was something that both Gladys and Charles pointed out in, in their report for Zimbabwe. And so that includes, you know, understanding power dynamics as they're perceived by our movement partners, by allies and by the opposition, so to speak all in an effort to to facilitate strategic relationships where sort of the the knowledge and the agency of those who are doing the work is is respected. And this also means encouraging and supporting safe spaces where we go beyond connecting the usual suspects and we either create or we reinforce those unlikely networks among uh, activists, among people that work within NGOs, sympathetic civil servants, musicians, um, creatives and technologists, but really in order to expand and to improve their knowledge of civil resistance, but also to find ways to make sure that knowledge is available, that it's understandable, and that it really becomes attractive to their own communities. Um, Second, there's always a need to focus on capacity and strategy. And one of the gaps that we're seeing, and um, experts like Maria Stefan and yourself, Shaska, have made a really compelling case about this, is that as authoritarians become more sophisticated in monitoring or repressing activists and human rights defenders, and as more people use social media to connect and to mobilize, movement effectiveness is decreasing. And so we're committing to supporting an array of trainings and workshops that talk about power, that teach people good old-fashioned organizing skills, where supporting dialogue and mediation approaches that really try to identify local grievances and solutions in ways that bring communities, especially those that are at loggerheads with one another, that bring them together to identify and strive for that, that common goal, if you will. And I also think it's really important to keep in mind that partners and donors can have multiple strategies at the same time. You can increase resistance while laying the foundation for dialogue and sustainable peace. Uh, Third is as a donor that is not accountable to government strategy or to a taxpayer, we can assume some risk. And that's important because not only does shared risk really uh, increase mutual trust, but there are times when key activities, especially when it comes to seeking accurate information on grand corruption or state capture they may be too dangerous for people living in the country to undertake or to investigate. And so I think we have a duty to make sure that people on the ground who are doing the work have the access to the most accurate information possible as they plan and as they seek to leverage their influence. And finally, we recognized uh, sort of a need to be really, um, you know, to be able to move quickly to support partners that find themselves in a moment of crisis or there's an unexpected window of opportunity, as well as commit to partners for longer periods of time and accompany them to achieve their goals. So all the while, you know, we wanna be really cognizant of the fact that movements have peaks and valleys and they require different types of support. And so just sort of to bring this home, um, these lessons and others have led us to, to make sure that as a donor, we can either respond in ways or Encourage our partners to respond in ways that capitalize on both designing and implementing strategies that are really sort of the nexus of those um, those uh, contentious extra-institutional methods that can intensify conflict, so civil disobedience and, and self-organizing, with the more conventional mitigation methods, right? So those, those multi-track approaches focusing on on activities that support uh, dialogue and facilitation and mediation that when you bring them together, we really try to create paths for inclusive political and peace processes that that try to avoid agreements that only address the the really narrow preferences of elites and often further entrenching inequality and poverty and and really the the root causes of violence.
3: Thank you, Brian, uh, for summarizing so much uh, uh, wisdom, about effective donor support in such a short time. Um, You've hit on so many key um, points, and um, I think it will uh, give uh, our other panelists uh, a lot to uh, comment on in terms of their own experiences, and perhaps even people who are participating uh, virtually in our session. Uh, So I'd like to encourage everyone who is uh, listening in right now to please send in questions Uh, Please send in uh, any comments or uh, experiences that you may be having in a country, either with international actors or uh, within um, your um, institution or civil society organization or movement. We'd like to hear from you now. Um, So um, I'd like to... um, And just mention again, because it's really important to please, uh, in order to submit your questions and comments, please use the chat box function that's located just below the video player on USIP's event page. So all of you who have connected via USIP's event page, please look on there now and submit your comments and questions just below in the chat box function, just below the video player. While you're doing that, perhaps I can just uh, turn to to all of you um, because uh, we're operating in a different world now from when the the field research was done and the reports were written. And of course, that world uh, that we all share now is the COVID-19 pandemic world. And so perhaps um, it would be great if each of you could take a couple of minutes to uh, just share uh, with us some comments about, I mean, just some comments about how are transparency, accountability, good governance, anti-corruption movements and civic initiatives in your country um, pivoting towards or dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic? Or how is the pandemic affecting the anti-corruption, transparency, accountability, good governance, movements, and civic initiatives in your country? Um, Olena, would you like to just start first this time
1: around? And I'll go in reverse order. Yes, sure. Um, Well, definitely uh, COVID-19 is a big factor. Well, and before COVID-19, of course, I'd like to mention that the fact that uh, we have an ongoing uh, uh, military conflict uh, in Ukraine also affects very much uh, um, anti-corruption struggle because, first of all, it uh, uh, distracts uh, attention from uh, corruption struggle. Uh, if uh, the national uh, sovereignty is at stake, uh, national security, of course, everybody feels it's a priority. It's uh, essentially Russian aggression is scarier than corruption to people. Uh, so it is very similar with COVID, I would say. Um, if COVID is a threat, then, of course, uh, corruption is a less of a threat uh, when we ha- need to deal with COVID. And, um, uh, society um uh, generally uh, cares less about um different uh, stories that keep happening uh, not uh, in uh, covid related expenses but in in other areas other sectors energy uh defense um um, our customs, uh, they remain as corrupt as before, even more, but people pay less attention, and uh, this uh, uh, story, some occasional story, uh, or some corruption scandal generates less of a response from people than before, I would say. And when it comes to COVID itself, of course, um, like any country, we we established a COVID fund, and um, we allocated uh, national resources to this fund and resources of the international donors and um, there was um, a lot of scrutiny to how this fund was spent because um, uh, a lot of organizations uh, um, they did their projects around monitoring this fund and yet even though there was this uh, oversight uh, the fund wasn't spent properly and i uh, Um, Like more than half of the money was spent on constructing roads, for example, uh, instead of medical expenses related to COVID and nobody could do anything about it. And right now, the International Monetary Fund, uh, who is our key international partner, is auditing the expenses of the Ukrainian COVID fund and trying to understand why we spend all of our money on roads instead of fighting COVID. But the answer is, of course, again, corruption during construction of roads.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, I wonder if there's a different dynamic in Guatemala or Zimbabwe, um, perhaps where corruption, the the linkage between corruption and COVID responses and develop and uh, uh, public services uh, to deal with the pandemic, uh, uh, is. Is being made if those linkages are being made and if citizens are involved in that. So Walter, let me turn to you and just ask you uh, for a, just a brief uh, uh, response about uh, the uh, the impact or the interplay of COVID with uh, citizen mobilization. Yeah.
4: Yes. So so because of the because of the lockdown, of course, this affected possibilities of the collective action, which is the, the heart, the center of, of social movements. But using this same lockdown, using the national emergency as justification, we have seen that the corruption has exacerbated the country. We also see a lack of capacity in authorities to lead the response to the pandemic uh, uh, a lot of lying and not being transparent with the citizens about what's happening with the pandemic. So we have seen that citizens have lost trust in authorities. But very importantly, throughout this process, civil protest by social movement did not stop. It's only that they adapted to the new reality. For instance, we have, we have seen an increased use of digital spaces for protests such as uh, Facebook, Twitter and others a lot of using local radio and audiovisual campaigns. And more recently, civic protest has returned to the streets, but they have adopted protective measures such as everybody using masks, a, a facial mask, maintaining physical distance, use of gloves or hand washing. And in the past few weeks, a large civic protest, which included street mobilization in different parts of the country, were successful in forcing parliament to back up. In their approval of a budget for next year that was very much prone to corruption and with insufficient support for people worse affected by the pandemic. This mobilization still continues because they are putting pressure in the resignation of the authorities that push for this uh, very corrupt budget. Uh, but more, more importantly, the message is that uh, people is aware that the pandemic will stay. A lot longer. It's not going to disappear soon. So they are rapidly ad- adapting to the new reality and continue uh, with this, uh, with the street protests, but also using more uh, alternative communication, as I mentioned.
3: Thank you, Walter. Um, it's uh, there's a lot happening in Guatemala, and it's uh, you're uh, illustrating how quickly sometimes adaptation can happen, and that tact- uh, creativity enters into tactical repertoire, into the selection and um, development of tactics to put pressure on those who are not listening. Gladys, let me turn to you and ask you um, for a, a brief uh, report from Zimbabwe uh, in a few minutes about, in a two, uh, three or four minutes about how, what is the interplay between COVID and uh, social movement activity uh, around corruption, transparency, accountability, and governance?
0: Uh, The situation has really been difficult for social movements in Zimbabwe in the COVID-19 era. Uh, We have seen largely, you know, what has been termed an authoritarian pandemic, um, 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 authoritarian pandemic, where you know the government has been using um, the lockdown in COVID-19 to sort of um curtail the freedoms of um of, of, of citizens. And citizens have really been trying to you know, mobilize, you know, um, you know, come together to demand accountability around how the COVID-19 funds are being handled, to demand um accountability even in terms of um you know, the inability of government to provide social safety needs to citizens. Zimbabweans, Zimbabwe is, um, is a highly informalized um, economy. So the majority of citizens do not have formal jobs. Um, and as a result, because of the lockdown, they've not been able to go to their jobs Um, And there was an expectation that the government was therefore supposed to provide social safety nets to the citizens and that that has not happened. So the government is really taking advantage of um, the COVID-19 pandemic to further loot resources of, um, you know, uh, I mean, at the expense of uh, the citizens, but also, you know, using the COVID-19 pandemic to sort of curtail um um you know the freedoms of 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 citizens as i'm talking to you right now elections were actually suspended you know because and and to be quite honest you know we don't have apart from the fact that we are not testing enough we really don't have um you know huge numbers in terms of um in in, in terms of the cases but the government is really seeing it as an opportunity to curtail, you know the freedoms of the city uh, of of citizens and also even to go after you know political opponents um they have used uh, the lockdown to go after you know the mdc alliance using the courts using you know um the military to, t- to seize the the headquarters of the of the opposition they're doing a lot of things uh, under the guise of um, uh, COVID-19, so it's really an opportunity opportunity for them to further you know, their political, you know, agendas in terms of destroying the authentic opposition um, in 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 Zimbabwe. So I, w- I would say those has those have been the the experiences um, in 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 Zimbabwe. It's more of an authoritarian pandemic that we are seeing.
3: Thank you, Gladys. I mean, your, the experiences in Zimbabwe echo what's happening in other parts of the world too. And for example, as you uh, you and both you and Olena have talked about how resources and funding that's supposed to go towards COVID uh, the pandemic is actually being looted. Um, and it just listening to you just makes me think that they're one of the things perhaps that international actors, Uh, could do and are doing, and maybe Brian will tell us about this, is bringing together uh, virtually people, uh, activists and civic leaders from different countries who are uh, hand to who are trying to uh, operate within the pandemic to learn from each other. So just listening to the three of you, I can just see how fruitful it would be if, for example, the three of you and some others from other parts of the countries just got together virtually and started talking about how are you doing it, what are you doing and and things like that. Something that's very simple, but could be so profound. So that was not meant to be a segue to Brian, but (laughs) um, Brian, it would be great to um, hear your um, input as a private foundation. Um, How is the pandemic affecting your priorities and interactions with social movements? And I'll mention that once you share with us some uh, thoughts, um, I'm going to direct a question to you from one of the participants.
5: Sure, that sounds good. Um, So one of the things I want to do is also just maybe take a step back and sort of acknowledge that, as a donor, we need to be really aware of what the environmental costs are of of doing this work. So this means being aware of of burnout and exhaustion, being aware of mental and physical health that is either threatened by repression and violence, um, as well as the stressors uh, that are a result of this pandemic. And so we try to accommodate this in in a few ways. And the first is we try to provide general operating support grants to organizations that provide legal support um, and medical and psychosocial care um, in countries where we've committed to accompanying movement partners over the more medium and longer term. Um, and we also make sure that uh, that essentially immediate family members of those people that we do support also have access to, to those services. And in situations where we can't give out, uh, you know, those types of grants, we, we try to connect our partners to organizations like Freedom House, to other regional human rights defenders networks to sort of help them seek additional support in, in emergencies. And we, we try to sort of help them problem solve as best we can as we go along. But also during the during the pandemic, we what we did is we actually reached out to every partner that we had to basically ask them what it was that they, that they needed. Um, so this included things like um, making sure that they had uh, money available to pay staff salaries and, and to cover staff benefits. This meant providing extra equipment, whether it was laptops or um, uh, sort of dongles and cell phones so people could connect. It meant making sure that people had not only access to internet, but good access if it was available. Um, And it also meant things like, you know, changing timelines and readjusting goals as needed and just being, uh, try to to be more flexible than um, what we could also, what we normally are. And then the other thing I, I sort of just going back to some of the conversations that the other participants were mentioning, I think one of the things to also keep in mind. And it's trying to maybe find a little bit of light in what is um, a really sort of hectic situation around the world right now is that I think there is also an opportunity in recognizing that uh, sort of COVID uh, And corruption could potentially offer sort of a, a convergence a convergence point, if you will, I think there are these issues could bridge the interests of certain people within government. Certain folks within movements and civil society to help them organize, you know, around healthcare, but also sort of lay the groundwork for some of the more uh, radical and sort of uh, systemic change that that needs to happen.
3: Thanks, Brian. Thanks for these uh, really uh, valuable and astute uh, observations. Um, the as mentioned, the, I have a question for you. Um, the question is um, I will read it out. Uh, it is I have a very operational or process question. What does implementing these principles look like in terms of staffing and tools provided by your organization?
5: That's a good question. Um, so I think. A couple of things. One is that uh, a lot of this we really try to focus on on relationships. So what it does mean mm-hmm. is that operationally, we commit to investing the time with with organizations and with people to really try to understand as best we can what their situation is and what it is that they want from us and how and how we can provide that for them. So that might sort of mean you know, having, uh, looking internally to figure out what types of skills and things that we can offer beyond just funding and in situations where maybe we don't have those capacities, looking to uh, other um, sort of other organizations who we have relationships or, or organizations and people who have those skills and making sure that we can connect them. So that might mean we uh, put together a contract for an organization that is really skilled at um, developing uh, sort of uh, PR campaigns. Um, if an organization or movement doesn't have that capacity, and sort of connecting them that way, we sort of try to sort of make those those connections and, and build out those networks so that the the partners that we do have are getting the building the skills that they need to have to feel confident both in their ideas and their ability to take it forward, um, and sort of build their own networks without without each you having to be uh, the person constantly driving that forward. Um, uh yeah i think a lot of it really focuses on on that so it's relationships and then sort of making sure that people are networks and have the the ability to sort of build their skills as they as they see fit
3: um i mean you raise really important points that when we talk about international support for social movements um oftentimes the um uh, the immediate thought uh, is funding but in reality there are so many non-financial avenues of support that are so important to movements and that are often very simple and don't and don't require a lot of funding to make happen for example what you mentioned which is putting movement actors in touch with organizations and groups who themselves have skills or capacities that they could share with movement actors Um, and i mean and we you know i'm sure all of you in in our panel would have examples from your countries about that, where you wish it would have happened or it happened and it was really helpful. The next question is uh, directed to Walter. And the question is given the recent less peaceful protest tactics employed in Guatemala to demand reform, do you think a return to the peaceful mass mobilization style of 2015 is required to be effective?
4: Yes, uh, I think that this uh, this less peaceful uh, action that was mentioned, which included uh, status on fire in parliament and also a public transport, these are the exceptions still. This These were probably uh, some people that were very much upset with the situation, but it still is not the, the main trend, the... the, the the process are still peaceful and I'm uh, and I'm very confident that they will remain peaceful. Of course, there is no in, in this kind of, of, of very large civic action, there is no control of every single person involved in the in, in the actions. But uh, what is very important, I think, is that uh, immediately the 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 large uh, social movement realized that as soon as the movement is uh, stopped being nonviolent, then they they lose the legitimacy that they have for their demands, and this is very clear. There was a widespread information that we that's our legitimacy. We we should maintain that. So I'm I'm pretty confident that 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 it will remain uh, peaceful, uh, because it's very much aware that that's where the strength comes from.
3: Thank you, Walter. Another question has come in uh, and um, I will read it out and uh, ask whomever from the panelists would like to respond to please uh, raise your hand. The question is throughout these USIP reports, there seems to be less success in accountability initiatives than transparency initiatives. What can we do to bridge this gap?
1: Okay, Olena, please. Yeah, I would like to say a few words on this because it's exactly the Ukrainian case. Ukraine uh, is super transparent, Uh, one of the most transparent countries. You can find anything about anybody online, uh, uh, the court decisions, declarations, uh, people's addresses, anything, yet uh, no accountability. And um, of course, uh, we came to our conclusion is that we need to reform judiciary. The uh, court, uh, anti-corruption court was not enough. It existed now for one year, but only um, six people were sent uh, to jail. And those people, um, they committed um, like small-scale corruption comparing to what we have here. And uh, yes, uh, judiciary is a very important pillar of um, society. And uh, if if there is no... uh, uh you know for a judiciary in in the country uh there will never be any accountability that's very simple
6: thank you olena uh gladys uh we'd love to hear from you thanks
0: I, I just wanted to say i think for zimbabwe it's a different ball game altogether because we actually don't have transparency We also don't have accountability, Um, and, and, you know, it is largely because because of the captured institutions that we have. Um, We have some kind of a facade democracy where the institutions that are supposed to provide oversight are there on paper. But in terms of, you know, how those institutions are working, it's an, it's another story altogether. So we have an anti-corruption commission that is supposed to be dealing with these issues of corruption, but again, like I indicated, you know, it's a captured um, institution. It's and and, and and it's failing to discharge its um, constitutional duties. We have the judiciary is the same case. The judiciary is actually used to persecute you know political opponents and you know tag actors and civil society actors. Um, so I think for Zimbabwe. You know and, and, and some of these corruption cases you know it's actually money that is being siphoned for instance directly from treasury, so you actually see that there is no transparency to talk about um and even the oversight role of parliament is currently being decimated because the opposition uh, parliamentarians are being plugged out of parliament as we speak so um just recently our own vice president and ibt who who chairs the parliamentary um you know, a public accounts committee, which is very key in terms of, um, you know, oversight role of, 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 of parliament on, on the executive was actually arrested on very flimsy charges, but you can see that they were going after him because of the role that he's playing in terms of providing um, um, oversight. So for Zimbabwe, no transparency, no accountability.
6: Thank
3: you, Gladys. Walter, did you want to comment?
4: Yes. Uh, transparency is an important factor to achieve accountability, but by itself is not sufficient. And I think that's one of the major weakness of many organizations working in the area of good governance and transparent accountability, that, that they assume that by supporting transparency action, that's sufficient or automatic will lead to accountability. I think organizations must be aware, especially external donors, that tackling corruption and accountability, lack of accountability is actually tackling the abuse of power by powerful actors and authorities. So this is not a matter of having a set of rules, it's a matter of of long-term engagement and pushing and pulling with this uh, with these very powerful uh, actors. So it's very difficult to have achievements or success in accountability if donors work in a frame of mind of one or two year cycles instead of seeing that this is a long-term process and and also instead of adapting to how the solution is evolving. It is easier for donors wanting to support this that they just want to support similar strategies or, or the same thing that they use elsewhere without really paying attention to each individual context, what do they need and support more long and medium engagement process. So until we start doing that, I think we will not see uh, successful examples of of tackling the issues of uh, lack of accountability of of, uh, corruption.
3: Thanks, you've hit on something very important that um, a lot of this discourse and concepts uh, come from the international community and uh, their applicability or relevance may not be the same in each context. Um, Brian, uh, I don't know if um, if you would like to comment uh, on this uh, line of conversation. Uh, But uh, if you want to take uh, two minutes or so, uh, please do so.
5: Yeah, thanks. I mean, just to sort of uh, build on to what Walter was saying, is I think it's also important to not uh, sort of look at donors as all the same. So uh, making sure that there are situations where you you have donors with a lot of money who are often you know the USAIDs, the DFIDs, CEOs of the world who can come in and sort of really. they had the the capital to invest and really shift. But it's also making sure that uh, organizations that you all run are are able to also link up with foundations who have a little more flexibility and find ways to get them uh, find ways to program and do the work that you want to do uh, and sort of use both of those different types of organizations for, for your own benefit.
3: Thank you. That's really helpful, Brian. So we have now 15 minutes left to our session. Time has been flying by and questions are coming in. Uh, So what I'd like to do as the moderator is the following. There's one question that's come in for Gladys. I'd like to uh, give Gladys the floor to answer that question and then uh, basically take the remaining time for each of you to wrap up And in the wrap up, if you would um, very succinctly just um, share a few takeaways for civil society and international actors from the USIP field research and the special reports you authored. So literally, if you would be able to just say, here are two, one, two, three takeaways for civil society and social movement actors, one, two, three takeaways for international actors. I think a lot of that has already been covered in the conversation, but I know that there are rich insights in the reports and it would be great for you just to highlight a few of those insights. So we've got now exactly 15 minutes and there are four of you. So that means less than four minutes per person. And I have to be really strict So I have to say three minutes per person, because then we have to wrap up it because we're going to get cut off. Um, So I'm going to set the timer for three minutes. And then after three minutes, I'm just going to say, like, do this for each of you. So Gladys, um, the question for you is, given the recent events in Zimbabwe, do you think Zimbabweans in general are fed up and ready to join social events for drastic change or have they given up hope? so if you could answer that question and then share a few takeaways that would be phenomenal
0: i do not think that zimbabweans have you know given hope uh given up hope on the situation in zimbabwe yes we have a very difficult situation um especially around the capacity of citizens to mobilize given how militarized the society is but i think zimbabweans continue to demonstrate uh, that they are ready to, you know, come together and to um, uh, let the regime know that they are not happy with what is going on around corruption, human rights abuses, um, you know, all of the issues that we are facing um, in Zimbabwe. And we saw that on, on, on um, you know, even after the 1st of August 2018, after 2019, we saw citizens coming together again just recently. Around the July thirty first uh, movement, so the citizens have continuously, you know, tried their level best to mobilise, and I believe that, you know, it, it someday Zimbabweans will, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, they will be successful in terms of um, getting what they are demanding from 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 the government. Coming to the recommendations um, or the key, you know, um, takeaways from the research, I think number one. Um, with specific reference to countries such as Zimbabwe, it is important for international actors to help you know tag actors um, in terms of uh, putting diplomatic uh, pressure um, you know for reforms, especially for Zimbabwe it's really important I mean given how the society is so militarized, how the civic space has um, you know uh, shrunk, it's important to get that boost from international um, you know, actors in terms of diplomatic pressure to make sure that there are reforms that are necessary uh, to the resolution of, of of the crisis. That's number one. Number two, you know, more resources are needed for democracy and governance actors in such environments, um, so that they continuously, you know, push a back on authoritarian consolidation. Um, it's unfortunate that you know, given the context of COVID and everything. I mean, donor priorities are shifting and everything, but it's important to make sure that you know in authoritarian regimes such as zimbabwe democracy and governance uh, resources are available and this funding should not just be available you know around elections because when these funds are also you know around available around elections it feeds into the you know propaganda by regimes uh, such as um, you know the one that we have in zimbabwe that you know um civil society organizations uh, are puppets of the west and they are there to push a regime change agenda so um, it's important for civil society to remain visible in communities throughout the electoral cycle. Number three is um, it's important to support uh, su- the support should be targeted at various levels. Um, you know, the ecosystem, the full ecosystem of uh, civil society organizations, including grassroots um, you know, level organizations, because these are the people that are really connected um, to the people um and and, and 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 so it's important to to also focus on these organizations and some of these organizations do not necessarily tick the box um all the boxes in terms of you know criteria for funding and everything and it's important to be flexible to to allow these organizations to do the kind of work that is needed at a grassroots level um also you know um local ownership of um, you know the ideas that we'll be pushing, uh, it's really important, especially in contexts context such as um, Zimbabwe, where there are sensitivities around the role of the West and um, you know all the propaganda that we we, we get from um, from 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 the government. I would say for me those are some of the recommendations to external actors. I'll stop here. Thank you, Gladys. That's
3: really uh, an important uh, list of of recommendations and I know all the hard work that you uh, and Charles Mangonguera uh, did in Zimbabwe to gather this input and these insights. Thank you for that. Uh, Walter, I'd like to turn to you quickly, um, very, very fast. Uh, Please share with us a few takeaways.
4: Yes, the main takeaway from from our research but also from from my work in many different countries is that uh, we have the support of external donors and supported like uh, the organizations of Brian, but they are the minority. The majority of the support comes from bilateral donors or large donors that use public funding and they are used very inadequate structures to provide support. They use the same framework that they use to support general development, which is very rigid, logical frameworks and very in the principal value for money which it doesn't really work for this kind of work of supporting organic uh, uh, organic social movements my second comment is is that there is a need to support the organic analysis capacity building and learning within organizations still many donors are parachuting external consultants into different countries that are aiming to provide support to grassroots organizations or social movements that they, they, many of them do, they do know what they need, what they want, what they need is the support of solidarity instead of external consultant parachuted. And the final one, which is very important, I think is the most important is that we need support for grassroots organization. The heart of social movements are grassroots organization. And by that, I mean voluntary organization. They are aiming to improve public policies and services that directly is affecting them. So this is opposed to many of us who work in professional NGOs. So donors, external actors need to have alternative arrangements to support grassroots movement because many of them, ask grass organization to have financial and administrative system to receive grants which they do not have but some of the alternatives that we can have is NGOs, local NGOs, national NGOs that do have those structures, they can be intermediary organizations with external donors to provide support through training capacity building to grass organizations. I'll stop there.
3: Thank you. You did that in two minutes. I've got I'm timing you. Olina, two minutes, (laughs) please. I know that's not a lot of time, but please share with us some takeaways from the report. I'll try to be uh, as precise as Walter uh,
1: in terms of timing. Uh, Indeed, uh, in my report, uh, I had uh, exactly the same recommendation about the uh, grassroots movements, about uh, local um, communities, because um like i mentioned before there is no national uh, nationwide organic anti-corruption movement in ukraine but there are multiple um organic movements that happen around uh, different localities around the different corruption problems where corruption is affecting people uh themselves but yet those people are, are not able to receive any funding and my suggesting was that Uh, these big professional organizations in the capital can be used uh, as a funding hub for those uh, smaller organizations and capacity building uh, facility. Um, The second recommendation uh, for international donors was to uh, essentially try to um, leverage the power of Ukrainian civil society more when they are trying to push for reforms in Ukraine, because I analyzed in my report that many of the reforms that Uh, where conditions of conditionalities of um, the international uh, uh, donors uh, failed uh, because uh, civil society uh, were not interested in them, uh, didn't know. And uh, civil society is really powerful in Ukraine. They go on TV, they go um, uh, in parliament, uh, they shape opinions. So um, international donors should understand that um, they need to engage more with, society to to achieve this country ownership of a reform um this the another recommendation was of course to set those conditionalities in a strict uh, uh fashion and if we see that um, corruption uh persists uh, donors can uh, uh you know refrain from providing financial support because very often uh the support that the country receives is used uh uh, to even increase corruption and to uh, profit corrupt officials. This is, of course, a known fact. And uh, my last point was that it's very important um, to pay attention uh, to uh, protection uh, and support of uh, anti-corruption activists because, um, you know, on the cover of my report, we chose to have a picture of anti-corruption activist Vitali Shabunin. And at the time of my report, Um, He was attacked uh, during one of the street uh, protests uh, with some um, medical antiseptic liquid. But now, uh, one year later, uh, his house was uh, set on fire. So that's the difference and the scale. Um, And uh, we had uh, uh, one of the anti-corruption activists, Katerina Gadzyuk, not from Kiev, but actually she's a regional activist. uh, And regional activists are much more in danger than kiev activists and they are just killed for for their activities so um just uh, we should always remember about this especially uh, on this day
3: thank you thank you olena you echo what uh, you were reinforcing what gladys is saying that uh, solidarity and protection is so important uh people are challenging vested interests and they face repercussions for that um brian i'd like to give you two minutes apologies that i cannot ma- uh, stretch our time i'm going to put the timer on and then we'll just wrap up we'll have like two minutes after that before we get cut off thank you
5: I'm a new yorker shaska i can i can speak fast um sort of holding that that really good question around process and operations holding on to that for a moment uh one of the things that all the reports mentioned was that tension felt between movements and activists and donors who have different priorities and we are all pretty well aware of how donor dollars can create or exacerbate divisions within civil society that that ultimately handicap the ability to sustain a kind of mass nonviolent action that that builds social cohesion and fragments power of the, the ruling party or the government, which is really needed to get those key individuals to jump ship and help shift power. So um, our approach is to try to mitigate this in sort of like three different ways and I hope there are uh, things that resonate both with you know, folks who are donors and folks who are accepting uh, donor money. And so the first is, right off the bat, at our first meeting with a potential partner, it's important that we are clear about what our interest is, um, what we're offering other than just funding, why we think collaboration is going to help achieve mutual goals, and what our red lines are. And so you know, among those red lines is that we will only support movements that are committed to nonviolence, whose campaigns are consistent with international recognized human rights, and movements that are not part of a political party. And this framework was really adopted by a thought leader in the field, the International Center on Nonviolent Conflict. And I hope we can get that link in the chat. The other thing is, you know, we got to really take on the work to find out not only where the gaps in funding are, but to ask people what they're already planning on doing so that we avoid a situation whereby certain activities are getting triple funded because donors think they're, they're attractive and their real needs aren't getting funded and perhaps um, sort of what I was trying to talk about before is a unique role that we can play are those those networks that we can bring in um, you know when they're relevant and that can help our partners fast track progress and so some other things that we have done is that you know we try to have private and as frank as possible conversations with other donors about making sure that financial support is is spread out and that we avoid king making so to speak and then we try to connect our partners like I said earlier to those who have certain technical experience but we also try to make sure that those, those partners and those voices are connected to people that are on Capitol Hill or who are in the executive, you know, people who set policy, but who are designing you know, RFPs so that they they better understand the impact that they're having in creating harmful competition or in an effort really to mitigate those, those predefined, uh, externally determined objectives and, and goals. And I'll leave it there.
3: Thank you, my apologies for doing this. We're gonna be cut off in one minute. Uh, So um, I'd just like to thank all of you for your outstanding and insightful contributions. And thanks to all the participants for joining us today. And thanks to the United States Institute of Peace and Miranda Rivers and our other colleagues for convening this meeting. If you want to stay in touch, please get in touch. And um, we'd be happy to forward you resources on the special reports thank you very much. I think we're going to get cut off in like five seconds. Thank you all.
0: Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts,
5: visit usip.org podcasts.